I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Welcome to this bonus episode of Murderish. In this episode, I interview a lady named Kathy who had a long-term friendship with John Meehan, a.k.a. Dirty John. She even spoke with him through email the day before he attacked Tara and ultimately died. If you're a fan of the Dirty John podcast, you might enjoy this additional insight into who John was as a friend and co-worker. Also, stick around at the end of the show for a couple of podcast promos. One of them is for a new podcast launching soon called The Murder in My Family. The Murder in My Family is hosted by Morph, who is the co-host of the Criminology Podcast. The other promo is for the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast, which is another great true crime podcast. All right, let's get into the show. Hey, Kathy, it's Jamie. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Doing well. Do you have Mother's Day plans? Oh, yeah. We're going to be going to brunch. Oh, fun. You guys Today are- and tomorrow. Oh, fun. Cool. Make it two days. Why not? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me today. I've been, you know, really looking forward to talking to you. Um, obviously, you know, you knew John Meehan, you know, aka Dirty John for many years. And I'm just so interested to hear, you know, kind of what you know about him because as you know, you know, the Dirty John podcast just totally blew up and has become wildly popular and people are so fascinated by Dirty John and now they're making a TV series. And so of course, you know, people, including me, are going to have a real interest in understanding, just getting inside of his head as much as possible and understanding what made him tick and what made him the person he was. And I think that you probably have a lot of insight, you know, on that. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to know exactly what he was thinking. I don't think anybody can ever, you know, get the whole story. But I think everybody tells their own bits and pieces of it. We could probably put something together. Yeah, just getting all the different perspectives. You know, as you know, I spoke with John's, you know, first wife, Tanya, and, and his daughter, Emily, and I talked to Tara Newell. So again, I've been so excited to talk to you. So just kind of going back, when did you meet John and and how did you guys meet? Um, In early 1990, I took a job for a law firm in Los Angeles and he was already working there. So that's where we met. But I remember on my first day of the job, you know, my supervisor would take me around and she would introduce me to different people in the office that I was going to be working with and working for. And I remember that first day, three different people warned me about John Meehan, which I thought was really odd. Yeah. They didn't tell me he was dangerous or anything, because I don't think anybody at that point knew. But they said that he was a a womanizer. 
Okay, so he had a reputation of being a womanizer, not not so much, you know, sort of a nefarious character, you know, in a dangerous sense, but but definitely a womanizer. Right, right. Okay, and what were some of the things that they said to you as far as their warnings? Um, really, they just said he's very handsome and charming, and that he was, you know, interested in women, and he was just, uh, I don't know. When I heard this description of him, I pictured some kind of you know, lecherous man, just mm-hmm. some kind of creep and, uh, you know, someone who'd be like hanging all over you and, and that sort of thing. And he wasn't at all like that. Okay. So he was the, the charming John Meehan, the smart John Meehan, those types of things. Yeah. Okay. And so in 1990, I'm trying to think back. Um, it's been a while since I talked to Tanya, but I believe he, so he was married at that time, right? Did people in the mm-hmm. office know he was married? No, he wasn't married yet. He oh, was. Okay. He, it was rumored that he was engaged, gotcha. but nobody really believed it because he was dating different women in the office. Okay, gotcha. So, okay, so he was, yeah, because I can't remember. I talked to Tony quite a while ago, and I can't remember exactly what year they got married. So it was just rumored that he may be engaged. So how long after you started working there, did he approach you? Did you approach him and spark up some sort of friendship or... It was, well, we we were introduced, not, not that first day, I don't think, but shortly after I started working there, we were introduced, and he really didn't even seem to, like, notice me. He mm-hmm. barely made any eye contact. He stood up and shook my hand, and then he sat back down, and the attorney that introduced us, I had a question for him, and he answered it, and then I left. But it was a very brief introduction, and he just really didn't seem, he wasn't what I pictured. Yeah, you were probably picturing kind of some sort of creepy guy that would probably be pretty aggressive, you know, toward women. And it seems yeah. from driving, John was just kind of like, hey, nice to meet you, but not aggressive at all and not didn't give you like the creepy vibe from the start. Right. Not at all. I thought, oh, this is it. This is it. (laughs) It was kind of like, huh, okay, whatever. And then uh, we just, you know, I went about my day and there would be um, group luncheons or parties at the office and I'd see them. And, you know, I guess a handful of us that kind of stuck together because we were all around the same age and uh, single. Okay. Most of us were single. And so we would just kind of talk amongst each other, but he never really seemed any different than anybody else. We really didn't talk one-on-one, and then about, I guess, shortly after that, I decided to start law school, and that's pretty much when he started paying attention. Oh, so I guess I should ask you two questions. What was John doing? What was his job at the law firm, and why do you think he paid attention all of a sudden when you entered law school? I don't really know why he started, but he was a law clerk at that time, supposedly in law school. I think it was Western or something in Fullerton, maybe? He never told me he was in law school, but other people told me that he was in law school. And other people said that they thought he'd gone to a year in med school or something at that point. But uh, I don't know. When I was in law school, the first year of law school, the school would give us a practice exam that we would take. And it wasn't really, it was graded, but it wasn't counted just so that the first year students could get an idea of how tests went because they were completely different than undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I had received my first midterm scores and they weren't all that great. But I hadn't said anything to anybody. But out of the blue, he shows up in my office and he said, how's law school going? He sat down in the chair in front of me. And I then I said, well, you know, I got this bad grade or whatever. And then he immediately like went into teacher mode and he started telling me, you know, what to look for and how to how to take a test, a law school test. And then about a few days later, he came in my office. He said, come here, I have something for you. Come to my car. So we went down to his car and he opened his trunk and he had all these books and notes and briefs, everything from his first year of law school he was giving to me hmm. and study guides. I mean, it was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And so then he, then he would kind of go over a few things with me and then that was it. And it was, you know, he really helped me get through my first year of law school with all that information he gave me. So he was just being very helpful and kind of all of a sudden, you know, showed an interest in befriending you or helping you or both, you know, kind of just seeing that you were struggling a little bit and and wanted to help. So, and then, so from there, um, he obviously, you know, was wanting to help you. So you guys were friends and at some point, did you develop more of a romantic relationship? And, And if so, how did that come about? Was he the one who kind of brought that on? Well, we were friends for several years, actually. He, In fact, I was with somebody at that point, and um, we were getting married. 
Mm. And I think we got married about a month before he did. And that was in 1990, I believe. So I wasn't going to, there was just nothing there. It was just a friendship. Sure. It was really just a friendship. And, um, and then my marriage lasted only three years. And then, so it started sometime after that. Okay. And um, when you all got into a relationship, did you, so you knew at the time that he told you he was forthright that he was married or was he not, not forthright he, with you? He said they were no longer together. Oh, okay. And so he, that was his story. Yeah. And he worked that angle for a while, you know, I guess to convince me, but still he hadn't tried anything. Okay. So he was just very moving very slowly. But, Very slowly, yeah. But you would consider it, like it was understood that you all were in a relationship, but it was just moving very slowly. Not really, no. I just thought we were friends. Okay. You know, eventually it turned out to be more. I think it was sometime in 94. Okay, so you were friends for about four years before you actually, you know, got into a relationship. Right. And yeah. so it obviously, so his story to you was, hey, you know, my marriage didn't work out. And so you thought that he was single. And so how long did you all date and, and what was it like? Were, were there good times, bad times? You know, what well, was he like? How, how was he as a boyfriend? Well, I wouldn't even really call him a boyfriend. I never had him. I never thought of him as that because at that point he was in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So we kind of go back a little bit. Sure. He lost his job and then he took another job uh, for another uh, law firm down the street. In LA, yeah, okay. on, on Wilshire. And uh, he would call sometimes and see how I was doing. And then we'd meet for lunch or something. And, you know, it was all very platonic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one night he uh, called me at home and he said, hey, can you meet me for dinner? And I thought, well, well, okay, I don't have class tonight. He said, I, you know, I want to I talk to you. And so then um, he said, come by the condo. And that was the condo that he was living in with Tanya. And I thought, okay. At that point, he hadn't told me that they were separated or anything. He just wanted to get together. And I thought, well, okay, whatever. Sure. And so he said, he said, come to the condo. And, uh, but I have to warn you, there's nothing here. I said, what? And he said, Tanya's gone. Hmm. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, I thought this was kind of interesting. So I went and he was waiting out front and he waved his arms around so that I could see where, which unit it was. Cause he said they all looked alike. And, uh. I thought, I got to see this for myself. So I, he said, get in the car. He said, well, go get some pizza around the corner. I said, well, let me use your restroom first. And so that was my way of getting in to see. Sure. You know, and it was empty. It was just like a little TV on the floor, a blanket, a box of, of cereal and a bowl. Everything was emptied out of there. And what year was that? I don't remember. It could have been 92 or 93. I really don't remember. Okay. I, so, you know. So he had a completely empty condo and he had told you at that point, Tanya left. Right. Okay. And I assumed that she left him. Sure. That she may have found out about his affairs with the other women in the office and, and just took off. So we just went to pizza and then uh, had, a, you know, had dinner. And then uh, he took me back to the, where I was parked. He had told me where to park near his condo. And he just said, uh, you may not be hearing from me for a while. I'm going on a ski trip to Taos, New Mexico. And I said, oh, okay. It was right around the holidays. Oh, okay. You know, thanks. <laughs> I thought it was odd. And then I left and that was it. And then I didn't hear from him for, I don't remember, a few weeks or a few months or something. And then he called and he said, get a pencil out. I'm going to give you my new address. And it was in Ohio. Hmm. So I said, oh, are you back with Tanya? And he said, no, no, no. He said, I'm going to nursing school. He said, I'm going to be a nurse anesthetist. Mm-hmm. I said, he said, they have a really good program out here. I noticed it when he said it was, I think, maybe the same one Tanya went to back when they met years before or, or something. I don't know. He just said that it was a really good program that he knew about and that that's, he, that's where he would be for a couple of years. Okay. So that was in Ohio. So you visited him in his, in his condo in 1992. And then he tells you, Hey, I'm going to be going on a ski trip. You might not see me for a while. What happened during that time, looking back now where he told you, was that a lie basically that he was telling you that he was going on a ski trip? Like what was he trying to cover up by telling you he was going on a ski trip? Well, I think he was moving and Mm -hmm. didn't want to, didn't want to tell me that. Okay. I think he just wanted to, to see me one more time, I guess, and just, you know, have a, have a good evening. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was bored because he was living there in this empty house with, you know, a box of cereal and needed somebody to go out with or something. Right. So then after that happened, he 
moved back to Ohio, but he told you, no, it's not to go be with Tanya. It's just, I'm going to go to nursing school. Right. Okay. And that you knew of, so you had mentioned that he had had, you know, several affairs or an affair with somebody in the office. So he, it was known in the office at the law firm that he was having affairs with women in the office. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which is probably how he got his, his title as the, as a womanizer. Right. And I can't remember if he was having the affairs after they were married. I, I think he was, but I don't, I don't remember if they were all before he got married or after. He came to my wedding. Oh, he did. As just as in what year did you get married? 1990. 1990. So you all were just good friends at that point and he attended your wedding. Did he come alone or did he? No, one of the other girls in the office brought him. Okay. He came with a date. It sounds like you all had, you know, a close enough friendship. And then, so he moved back to Ohio and from what you were aware of, he was going to attend nursing school. And did you all keep in contact once he moved to Ohio? Yeah, he would call every now and then, like maybe every few weeks or every couple months or something he would call. He had this uncanny ability to call whenever I was in distress. And I don't know how he knew I was in distress, like when my marriage was falling apart and I moved out. He just happened to call right around that time. Hmm. And then there were other times over the years, if I was breaking up with a guy and, you know, kind of struggling, he would call like out of the blue. Hmm. It's like he always seemed to know. When I needed a friend. <laughs> and it's like looking back now, of course, I'm joking, but it's like I wouldn't put it past him if he had some sort of like device on you where he calls and like saves the day when you're having a bad day just to kind of like well, do even more. Yeah. I often wondered if he was like having me watched or something. Right. Because it was it was so so strange. It is. But back then they didn't have, they didn't have the technology back then, I think that they, you know, that they do now. They didn't have GPS and they didn't even have uh computers. Oh, yeah, it certainly would have been much harder for him to, you know, keep tabs on you versus nowadays. Right. It did strike me as being weird all the time. That is odd. And so what was John like as a friend? Like, how would you describe him as a friend and as a person just in general? He seemed very normal. He seemed very interested in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. He would call and he would ask me more about my life than he would tell me about his. Hmm. You know, he didn't really volunteer a whole lot. I'd ask a little bit, but I could tell that he was kind of guarded with his personal life. But I didn't, you know, figured, Mill, maybe he just leads a boring life and doesn't want to talk about it. Sure. You know, just in school. And I figured he was working. He must have, you know, I figured he probably had a job putting himself through. I didn't know that he was still with Tanya and she was supporting him. Yeah. Didn't find that out until like 2001, I think, or 2000, after he went to jail. Wow. And so, uh, you know, it's very interesting when you say that, you know, John was very interested in what you were doing and kind of like, you know, into more into what you were doing versus telling you what he was up to. And that is kind of, you know, the sentiment that so many, uh, it seems like so many women say, I mean, Deborah Newell mm-hmm. said it, you know, when she got married to him, he was so good. That's part of what drew her in is that he seemed so interested and such a good listener and really wanted to know what she was doing. And Tanya said the same thing. He was, you know, mm-hmm. just so interested in what they were up to and just seemed to be so attentive. But, you know, looking back, do you think that that was truly just part of his genuine personality? Or do you think that that was just part of his scheme, for lack of a better term, to really draw you in and get you kind of hooked on him? Probably the latter. Probably. Yeah. It's it's hard to say because, you know, being long distance like that, we didn't really see each other often. Well, anyway, so then I, I left my husband in 93. Mm-hmm. And he then I started seeing John would come out and visit, I think in 94 is when he started to come out. 94, 95, he would come out and visit. But we were never like, it was never a romantic thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard Deborah Newell talk about hand-holding on the beach and, you know, romantic. He wasn't like that. Oh, what was he like? He was just, you know, he was more like a friend. Really? I mean, obviously it got more than that. Sure. But it was just more like a friendship. It's interesting. Yeah, he seems to change. You know, obviously, I don't think anybody's the same with every single person they're with, but there are definitely some slight differences, you know, just talking to you and talking to Deborah and talking to Tanya as far as how he was, you know, as a romantic partner, you know. So it's just interesting. Um, did you ever get any red flags? And even just looking back, was there anything that you can look back in retrospect to say, you know what could have been a red flag or anything, any hint that he was kind of a, a bad person? Well, I first I got a, an inkling about possible drug use when uh, he was he was still working for the firm 
but the girl, remember the girl I mentioned that took him to uh, my wedding? Uh huh. She was no longer working there, but a group of, of them, John and a couple other people, several other people, they took a trip to Mexico. And after the trip, this girl um, was had called or whatever, wanted to get together for dinner after work. And so I just her and I, and I think maybe one other person, we met for dinner. And I said, hey, how was Mexico? And she said, oh, it was okay. And then she said, I said, who all went? And so she was telling me who went, and John Meehan was one of them. And then she said, oh, it was it was so disgusting. And she got like beat red, and she started shaking, and she was very angry. Mm-hmm. I said, what happened? And she said, well, we were all supposed to meet for scuba diving. I think scuba diving or snorkeling, I can't remember which one. And he never showed up. So she said afterwards, she went to his room to say, hey, what happened? She said, some girl answered the door of his of his hotel room. They had no idea who she was. And she could see past her. And John was sitting on the edge of the bed with a needle in his arm. Mm. And I thought, what? That's weird. And she's, oh, it was disgusting. It was so horrible. So I, you know, later I'd ask John about it. I said, hey, what's this about a needle in your arm? And he said, oh, I was sick and I was hydrating myself. Um, he said, I'd, I'd eaten something or drank the water or something. And I was, you know, putting fluids back in because I was really sick. So he always had a story. And, and obviously your friend from the law firm, she didn't recognize the woman that John was with at the time? No, she had no idea who she was. Oh, wow. And so what year did John go to jail? I'm trying to get an idea of, did you and him have a relationship before or after he went to jail? Oh, before. Before. I, I never saw him after he after he got out of jail. Okay, gotcha. And and um, did you, so you dated before he went to jail, but then he ultimately went to jail. And did you all correspond after that, even though, so I actually, let me back up. Um, what, how did your relationship with him end? What caused the breakup? Well, there was never any, we weren't really ever together like romantically so there was never a a breakup um he would uh he would come out and visit he would like breeze into my life and and say hey i'm in town or and then you know let's go to the the beach or let's go to the orange county swap meet or whatever hey i feel like going to tijuana let's you know whatever and then we would do things and then he was visiting his father because his father had cancer Hmm. and uh so he would he would be coming a little bit more frequently and so um we do things that in California. And then I moved to the East Coast in 1995. Okay. And uh, of course, he was always the first phone call whenever I moved anywhere. Mm-hmm. Any time, as soon as I plugged that phone in, it was him. <laughs> it's like, there he is. There you know, he, he is. Just, and- yeah, he knows. And uh, I remember I moved and started my job on the East Coast in December of 95. And then it was January, he called and he said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be in Philadelphia. Uh, I have a job interview. He said, why don't you come up? He said, I need, I'm going to go apartment hunting. He said, you can help me, you know, pick something out. And I thought, okay, it's only a three hour drive. So I drove up and we spent the day looking at uh, apartments that he had. And they were studio apartments, very tiny little studio apartments near, uh, near the train tracks. He wanted to be able to get on the train and commute. Mm. But all day long, we kept hearing about this blizzard that was coming. And I got kind of worried. I didn't want to get stuck in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, and during a blizzard. So I think it was after dinner or something. I said, you know, I'm going to go home. I think I'm going to go home. He says, yeah, I think I'm going to try to get a flight out too. So, and then I left. And then he was, when I left him, he was sitting there with a phone book trying to call airlines, I guess, to get a flight. Sure. And so from that point on, and I'm sorry, so that was 1995. Yeah, January. Okay. And then uh, from there, did you all continue to keep in touch? I mean, I know that you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you ultimately got remarried, right? Yeah, much later. Much later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Um, much later. So from the time in 1995, you know, to the time that you were remarried, um, did you all keep in contact? And, you know, what did he say he was doing, with, you know, in his life at that time? I had sent him a, uh, a page. He had pagers back in those days. And he called me back. I wanted to make sure he got out of Philadelphia, the lizard hit, because it was a big one. Hmm. And he said he got on a flight to Memphis. I said, Memphis? He said, well, I have a job interview down there, too. Hmm. And I thought, well, why don't I just spend a day <laughs> yeah. driving around Philadelphia? So I just said, oh, okay, whatever. And then um, 
a few months later, I think he said he was living outside of Nashville and that he was going to anesthetist school. And uh, he claimed it was at, uh, I don't know, what's that school over there, Vanderbilt maybe, or I don't know, mm-hmm. one of those med schools down there. Okay. So that's where he was then. And then, so we kept in touch. He would call. And um, I think I saw him again in 97, because then I started dating somebody. And uh, we dated for about a year. I think I started dating someone in 96. And then and then in 97, when I was getting ready to break up with them, of course, they're call- John's calling. Of course. Yeah. And uh, when I broke up with this guy, he started stalking me. And John called and he said, what's going on? And I said, well, and I told him I was being stalked by this guy. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll come right out. And he was out that weekend. Oh, wow. And I've often wondered if that's where he learned how to stalk. Sure. Because I haven't heard where the, where he did that to anybody else, you know, while he was still married to Tanya or before the, I would say before he went to prison and after he went to prison. I never heard of him stalking anybody before, but I could be wrong. I just haven't heard anything about sure. that. Sure. Yeah. But he came, he came out for that weekend and I picked him up at Baltimore Airport, and we spent the day walking around Washington D.C. and and uh, then went back to my place. I was I lived about an hour and a half away at that at that time from Washington D.C. And you know, he just stayed the weekend and then uh, went home. And the guy never bothered me again, so I don't know if he must have seen John there, sure, and figured that I'd moved on. And what year was that when John came to visit you in Baltimore? That was in uh, late nine fall of ninety seven. Okay. And then he came back out the following year in 98. I think it was early, it was late spring or early summer in 98. Okay. And that was the last time I saw him. He was supposed to come out in 2001. It was November because I think it was right around my birthday, but he never got off the plane. Oh, and what caused him not to get off the plane? Well, he never got on the plane. Apparently I was waiting in the airport. It was the first time I'd picked anybody up after 9-11. Uh-huh. So I couldn't go to the gate anymore. So I was I was a little confused. I had him uh, paged a couple of times in the airport. And then finally I contacted the airline to ask if he got on the plane. And they said, no, he never boarded. So I thought, well, that's weird. Because that's the first time you know he'd ever stood me up. Right. And uh, so I just went back to my apartment. And then a couple of days later, like after, shortly after midnight, the phone's ringing, but I didn't answer it. I just let him leave a voicemail. And he said that uh, Tanya had him put in jail and he was apologizing for not, for not making his flight. Wow. So he, um, so obviously, you know, his story to you before was, oh, I'm not with Tanya. But then obviously then, you know, I think this was in 2001, you said, where he didn't get on the flight. Yeah. And then he's telling you, oh, Tanya had me put in jail. So what was his story as far as why she put him in jail? He said that she had accused him of supplying the drugs to his brother that killed his brother. Oh, okay. And that he's, yeah, he said that was the reason. And then, uh, I didn't like I said, I didn't pick up the phone, but he did call me back and he told me that um, they were having uh, custody battles. Hmm. And that, you know, he told me that she was just having him. It was the thing about his brother. Okay. And, did, and that ooh, he gave oh, me his mom's number oh. and said that if, if I can't, if I don't hear from him for a while and I can't reach him to call his mother, she would know how to get in touch with him. And that's so interesting because he seemed to not want anybody to speak with his mother because he didn't really want his secrets to come out. It seemed right. So it's interesting that he gave you the number um, and asked you to call her if, you know, you needed to reach him. That's so interesting. Yeah. Did did you, when John told you that, you know, Tanya, you know, had him locked up because he was supplying drugs to his brother, did you believe it? Or what what did you think of that at the time? Well, I, I called my mother and asked her because she was in law enforcement. And she said, well, she said, they usually do let people out at that time. So it's possible. Mm-hmm. She said it's a lot of times when they release uh, prisoners, they'll do it in the middle of the night or, you know, at 1230 or something. And that was about the time that he called. Okay. And so then from there, and that was in what year that he called? That was 2001 still? Yeah. Okay. And so he says, okay, so Tanya has me put in jail. And then from there, where did your life go kind of, you know, after 2001? And then what was your contact with John, you know, during that time? Well, I think he called maybe a few days later to try to explain. And uh, he sounded kind of, kind of weird, you know, kind of scared. 
I could tell that something was going on, something big. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't hear from him for a while, but uh, I never called his mother. I was working for the Department of Justice at the time, and I had a pretty high security clearance. And I thought, oh, I'm not getting involved in this. Right. You know, I wasn't going to contact this this guy who was <laughs> a drug supplier. Sure. You know, so I just kind of I just kind of left it alone. And then I received an anonymous email from somebody from his email account. Okay. Claiming to be a woman that was his friend. And she gave me another email address and said, write me here. I know things about John. And this woman, then, uh, so I did. And she told me about his drug use, that he was stealing drugs from hospitals, that he was in jail. She said she was looking after his dogs and his house while he was inside. Um, she told me that he'd been with Tanya for 10 years. They had two kids and that he had another kid up in Michigan. And I mean, she just gave me everything. God, and what year was that? That was in 2002. Okay. And, oh, that's so interesting. So how, when the woman emailed you, do you think she knew to get a hold of you because she obviously had access to his email and maybe she saw correspondence from you and just figured you were somebody who knew John well and that she needed to warn you about him? Well, she hacked into his accounts. Mm-hmm. And uh, later, I mean, many years later, when John and I were back in touch on by, only by email, he told me who she was and that she had been put to jail for fraud and that she hacked into his credit cards and his bank, his everything, you know, she hacked into his accounts. And he said, uh, I don't know, he he didn't tell me he was she was a girlfriend, but I got the impression that she probably was. Sure. But that she, and she did, and I, I followed up on it and she, he was right about that. She did, did uh, get arrested and go to jail for fraud. Oh, she did. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to ask, you know, obviously he's always got a story about something and it, it seemed, you know, seems his MO is just really to put the blame on everybody else. So I was wondering if that was just kind of a, a BS story, you know, that he was telling you, but it turns out it was true. She actually did go for fraud. What kind of fraud? Um, She did insurance fraud. Okay. And, and then apparently, because I've read the court records, I don't want to, you know, say too much about it, but... Sure. She did hack into some a boyfriend's credit cards, according to the court documents that okay. she was accused of. Yeah, so uh, and whether it was his or not, I don't know, but um, that's what he he'd said, and it it did kind of check out. And so, just going back, I found it interesting that you worked for the DOJ. What what was your job title at the DOJ? What were you doing? I was just a paralegal. Oh, okay. And then, did you go on to um, become an attorney? Much later. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I I graduated law school in 95, but I hadn't passed the bar. Okay. And that, that's the time that I moved back east. Okay. So I just kind of started, started working, doing other things. But after I got the email from this woman, we emailed a few times back and forth. And then all of a sudden, my email started getting bounced back. She closed out her account. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, now I know the truth. And so I closed out that email account. And as soon as I closed it, I thought, this guy's going to get out and he's going to come looking for me. Hmm. And if he can't email me, you know, I don't want him showing up in person. So I reopened it with the same email account that I was using Okay, and left it there. So, and obviously, you know, just knowing that you, you didn't, you obviously did not want him to show up where you were. So at that point, were you a little bit afraid of John or were you, did you just have a hint that maybe he's not so good of a person? I mean, were you scared of him or... Um, kind of, I never had any reason to think he would hurt me, but, you know, prison can really bring out the bad Mm -hmm. that they can change a person. And I was worried about the person he would become. I was worried that he might've thought that I had something to do with it. Oh, okay. Because of where I worked. Sure. And I wanted him to know that I had in no way had any knowledge of what was going on, much less, you know, turned him in. Because I I figured that he would be out for revenge. It was just something I sensed about him. Okay. So you did get a sense that he could be somewhat of a revengeful person and you obviously didn't want to catch his wrath, you know? Right. So, mm-hmm. Okay. So you opened the email, you know, back up and did he continue to correspond with you after that point, after 2002? No, no, not at all. And I checked the email every now and then just to see if there was anything and there hadn't been anything. I hadn't heard from him at all. And then a friend of mine was working for a law firm in Los Angeles, and she called me up and she said, Kathy, you're not going to believe who's here. I said, who? And she said, John Meehan. Wow. He showed up at your work? No, at another at another law firm. Oh, okay. 
That's a, it was a workers' comp firm that she was working at. She knew uh, about him. Gotcha. She'd met, she'd met him at the wedding, and she heard all the stories from me you know, over the years. And so she knew about him. She said she recognized him, and she went and checked the, the sign-in book. And sure enough, John Meehan. So I said, oh, she's, he was in with, uh, with the attorney that she worked for at the time when she was call, making the phone call. I said, well, go tell him I said hi. And she did, and he got this cold, she said it was just a really creepy look on his face, a cold, stone-faced look like, he said, I think you have the wrong person. I don't know anybody by that name. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, I got to get in touch with this guy and let him know that I didn't do anything. Sure. You know, then I, then I got, that's when I got scared. Because then you felt like, okay, he's turned on me. He thinks I did something, you know, to lock him up. And uh, so you obviously didn't want to catch his wrath. And so at that point, so, and what year was that? 2009. Okay. I I was already married and and had uh, twins. Okay. By then. And so I was worried, you know, for all of us. Yeah, of course. So I started digging through court records because I knew he was very litigious. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was checking the uh, L.A. County, but L- L.A. County's court records weren't available online at that time. So I checked Orange County. I couldn't find anything. And then I checked San Bernardino County. And then I checked Riverside County and I hit the jackpot. Oh, he had, you find. He had, yeah, he found he filed a small claims action against uh, look like a property owner or something. But in small claims, you represent yourself. Mm-hmm. So he had an address and a phone number. I think the address was a P.O. box, but he had a phone number. So I figured, well, maybe that's a cell number. And I figured out how to email because I didn't want to call him. I didn't want to talk to him on the phone, but I wanted to get, I I just wanted to get in touch with him. So I figured out how to send an email to that phone number. I think it's VText or something. You know, I figured out what the address would be. And so I sent him an email to his phone and he responded. Oh, interesting. So what did he say? He said, well, I guess I can't hide from the internet. Ugh. (laughs) <laughs> and that was and, it, just short and sweet? Yeah, the first few emails were back and forth. He was very short and sweet. And then finally I said, I hope you don't think I had anything to do with it. You know, I'm sorry to hear what happened to you. You know, it's, uh, it just, I was shocked. You know, I just, you know, I'm really sorry that you went through all that. And I was trying to get a feel for, you know, what he was thinking. And he's just, finally he, he opened up and he said, well, I kind of wondered for a while, but I found, uh, I found who the leaks were. Hmm. So then he knew, he said he blamed his mom and Tanya. Oh, wow. And I told him that I never did call his mom that I, you know, probably should have, but then I got it, that this girl got in touch with me and he wanted to know who she was. And then, and then he told me who she was. Okay. And that, that was the woman who was eventually arrested for fraud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then he told me all that. Okay. So that's in 2009. And so what did he say he was doing in his life at that time when you, when you spoke? He said that he had he was managing uh, a RV HVAC company, hmm. heating and air conditioning for for um, RVs. Mm-hmm. He said he loved it. The pay was good. He was traveling. He'd gone to Paris, Costa Rica, you know, you name it. He was just all over the all over the world, having the time of his life. Okay, and in not in a relationship at the time that you knew of, or he was, or what? What he did he indicate at all if he was dating? Uh, eventually, um, over because the, then we kept in touch until about two thousand and twelve, I think. And he would tell me about different women he was dating, and where he, you know whether he thought it was going to go anywhere or not. You know, just kind of chit chat. Sometimes he'd send a picture. He said there was one girl. He said was a supermodel or something in her day, and she he sent me pictures of her. Obviously, very proud of that one. Yeah, <laughs> she was pretty. <laughs> she was very pretty. Being the womanizer that he was. Oh yeah, he was proud of that one. <laughs> I'm sure. So, so you all kept in touch all the way up to 2012, and I, and then again, my memory's a little fuzzy. Is that the year that he actually passed, or was no. it 2013 or 14? 16, I think he passed. Oh, okay, so I'm way off. Okay, so we we kept in touch till about 2012. And then, for no particular reason, I we just I just stopped hearing from him, and I stopped trying to contact him. And I just, you know, you get busy with life, and you just you're not always constantly emailing people. We just lost touch. And then it was about I think it was thirteen or fourteen, one of the two. I decided oh, I wonder where he is, so I started kind of googling, mm-hmm. and I saw and checking court records, and I saw all of the uh, 
arrest that he was arrested for stalking and carrying a firearm, a felon with a gun, you know, and I thought, oh boy, yeah, it's just, he hasn't learned. So you obviously had an idea, you know, more of an idea. You could see exactly how he was living his life, you know, and things had definitely gone downhill according to what, you know, the court records and the charges that were brought against him. And did he or you reach out any time after that, after you pulled records? Well, he was in jail and I thought, okay, everybody's safe now for a while. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think out of the blue, or I think I got an email from all it said was yo baby or something. I think that was in 2014. And then I wrote back what, what's up or something. And then he never, I never heard from him. And then I think it was February of 16. I thought, oh, I wonder what he's up to because I hadn't seen that. I knew he was out of jail. I thought, okay, let's find out where he is because I always tried to find out where he was. Sure. And he, at that point, he was, he wrote back, he was happily married to Deborah and he was just really happy and he was in pictures. He said pictures of, of them, of him, of her, his daughters and, uh, you know, just very happy. So, you know, your impression was that, you know, he had turned things around and he was in a good relationship and happy and things were on the up and up for him in, in February of 2016. Right. Okay. And so then at that point, I know, I think just in a previous conversation with you, I know that I believe you were in contact with him at least the, the day before he passed, right? Right. The day before he attacked Tara. Right. So tell me about that. Um, did he reach out to you and what did he say? You know, he told me how happy he was and everything. It was just a matter of time. It was very quickly after that. Then he told me about her daughters had gotten an investigator to check him out and uh, and broke up the marriage, essentially. And I said, well, I guess she didn't know about your past, Deborah. And he claims, that, oh, yeah, he, you know, she knew everything or whatever. And then he, he would fire like three emails to my one, you know, he would just keep responding to different things. And one of his responses was, Hey, you do what I, you do the things that I did. They'll give you a, your own syndication show. Oh, interesting. So he was hinting, you know, that he had done some, some bad things, almost kind of bragging about it. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. What, what month was that in 2016? I don't remember. It may have been February again. It may have been March, but it wasn't too long after he had you know, professed his undying love and happiness. Sure. And so his story to you was he basically he was angry because Deborah's daughters were pretty much after him and had a PI on him. And, and did he indicate that his marriage was falling apart because of it or? Yeah. He said that she'd moved out okay. and, uh, and, uh, took, took everything while he was in the hospital or something. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. He was in surgery or something. When it right. Happened. He was always seemed to always be in surgery. And he had all this list of medical problems that he had. And at this point, I didn't believe, you know, 99% of what he was telling me. Mm -hmm. But I, and a lot of times I didn't even really read his emails. He was emailing me so often and just, please call me, call me, call me. You know, I never did because I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to get involved in all that. Sure. Plus, I wanted to be able, I wanted to have time to respond and process it first and not say the wrong thing that was going to tick him off. Mm -hmm. Cause I could just see that he was a time bomb. Right. And so I would, I kept everything strictly email and he just sounded desperate. Did you say you did speak with him through email the day before he attacked Tara? Yeah. And I think you'd indicated previously he did sound pretty desperate. What, what kinds of things was he saying? Uh, well, some of it, he was asking for legal advice, so I really can't get into that stuff. But um, sure. he was just, he said he was running out of money mm -hmm. and running out of options. He told me he had a slow progressive MS, that he walked with a cane, that his dog uh, was a service dog that she, that Deborah had taken. And since everything has come out about him, I've kind of gone back over those emails to mm -hmm. see if I could see any signs. And he did tell me that he had renal disease. Mm. And I think. I think his daughter said that he had kidney cancer. Yeah, I, it, they did. Um, it was either Tanya or Emily said that they actually did find something pretty serious, some sort of cancer, I believe. Yeah, and he told me that in April of 16 that he had renal disease. Huh. And that would make sense then. So he knew that he had it. And that's, I mean, I'm not a nurse, but that sounds very, very serious. Yeah, I've looked it up since then. It does sound serious. Okay. 
And so, you know, in his correspondence, he just, he was running out of money, seemed pretty desperate. Um, he had lost his dog. And um, so then obviously we know what happened, you know, the next day he unfortunately attacked Tara. We all know what happened, you know, then how did you find out about the attack or did you find out just about his death and before you found out about the attack? Well, before he had made the attack, he had sent some really kind of cryptic emails that I did read and it sounded to me like he planned on killing himself. Okay. And in fact, I showed it to my friend and who lost her son through suicide. And she's since then volunteered, does a lot of volunteer work for suicide survivors, family members and things. And I said, what do you think? And she said, I think he's going to take his own life. Mm -hmm. I said, well, how do I respond? And she says, tell him that there's nothing that can't be fixed as long as you're still breathing. Mm. And so that's what I did. And then he would write back and say, I'm still okay. I'm, I'm okay. And then, but he would write emails like, you know, um, tell my kids I love them. Uh, tell everybody else they're in my thoughts. You know, you and I had some good times, you know, love John. See, and I wonder if that was, cause it, you know, like, as you said, he could have been suicidal or I wonder if it was something, you know, a bit more nefarious and he knew he was going to carry out a plan, you know, to attack Tara and do who knows what, you know, with mm -hmm. her. Do you think that there's a possibility it could have been that, that he knew he was going to do something really bad and that he may, you know, go to prison for it or? Yeah, I think he was thinking about it. I know he made a couple comments over the years that, you know, he was waiting for that diagnosis of, you know, brain tumor with three months to live. And then he was going to settle scores and then go live out the rest of his days on a beach in some island with no extradition. Oh, wow. That's, that's yeah. interesting because, you know, he, we all know now that he was very ill. Sounds like it was cancer. I'm not sure about the renal disease, but, you know, something very serious was going on with his health and he knew it. So maybe he was telling the truth when he said to you, look, I'm going to go settle scores. And that's really exactly what he tried to do. Yeah. But being it, the boy that cried wolf, I just, at that point, I didn't even believe it. Sure. And I figured, you know, he's he's perfectly fine. He's healthy, you know. And I kept trying to find out where he was because I was afraid he was going to go after Tanya. Oh, okay. And kind of led me to believe that he was still at the house in Vegas, but he just, I just didn't know. I just had no idea. He wouldn't really answer that part when I'd say, where are you? Right. And he, you know, are you still in the house? I said, where did you live before you met Deborah? And he said, why do you ask? Well, I didn't know he was in jail. Right. I said, well, it just seems like, you know, you were okay before that. And, you know, I was trying to calm him down a little bit. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, and he kind of changed the subject in the, the following email. It didn't really tell me where he was living. And so how did you hear about his death? And what were your thoughts when you found out? Well, I didn't hear back from him for a while. Uh -huh. And then, because he had several different email accounts that he would write me from and several and a couple different cell phone numbers that he would write me from. And they started getting bounced back. And mm -hmm. so I just started looking up. I looked up uh, his kids on social media. And there was a letter that Emily had written. And <clears throat> it was kind of a tribute to her stepfather. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned in there that her father was, her biological father was dead. Oh, okay. So I reached out to her on Facebook, but she didn't get back right away. And so I reached out to Deborah. Okay. And she told me everything. And you had not talked to Deborah before that time. You just no. you you were aware of Deborah, but you had not spoken with her before his death. Right, and I knew about her business, so she, I emailed her at her at her business. Okay, from from that same account that I used to write uh, with John, I emailed and, her from that account, and then she told me everything, and I just wow, I was in shock. I'm sure you could never even imagine that things would end that way. And I mean, how did it make you feel? Because obviously, you knew, you know, at that point, he really wasn't that good of a person, but you also had a friendship with him. So it, how did that feel to know that he, he was gone? I had mixed feelings. I mean, I was sure. sad to lose my friend, but at the same time, I was glad that he couldn't hurt anybody anymore. Yeah. And the, I think that one of the last things he emailed me was he said, uh, take care of your kids. Oh, and he was asking for pictures of my kids before that. That kind of creeped me out. Yeah. And I wonder, why I didn't, he, yeah, I wonder why he wanted pictures of your kids. I don't know, but I would send him baby pictures because I figured I don't want them to, him to know what they look like. I just kind of had a weird feeling about that. And well, he'd and say, I, well, you, you, you need to send me a recent picture. And 
And then I thought, okay, so I started checking his email address out on Facebook. You can search, you know, in the search bar, if you put in the email address or the phone number, sometimes you get a hit. Uh And I could see that he did have a couple of accounts on Facebook. One was under the name James Bonder, which was like kind of fits in with the James Bond thing that his sister had mentioned in her interview on the Dirty John podcast. Right. So I knew that he could at least see my profile picture, which was global. So I sent him that one. Well, and I wonder if he, you know, and I hate to think this way, but just knowing John Meehan, I wouldn't put, you know, anything past, I didn't know him, but knowing how he was, you know, I wouldn't put anything past him. So I wonder if he was asking for pictures of your kids because to show women to say, oh, look and pretend they were his. And the only reason I say that is because Emily had mentioned that she knew that, that John was going around showing people, oh, look, these are my kids, you know, this and that to kind of lure women in and show them how great of a father he is when in fact he was not a good father at all, you know, at that time. So I just wonder if he had some sort of plan to use the pictures of your kids to serve himself. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, that's that's possible. I I worried that he was going to take them. Yeah, or that. That was my fear. Right. But maybe he was just using them to attract women. Well, cute pictures. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder he wanted to use their pictures. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So after this all happened. So did you listen to the Dirty John podcast? Obviously you did because you mentioned that the interview with John's sister. Yeah, Deborah sent me the link. She's right. the one that told me about it. And I had never, I mean, I kind of heard of podcasts, but I'd never listened to a podcast. So I pulled it up on the on the internet and I, I was reading it first. And then I realized, oh, I, there's something to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, I was, I was fascinated. I'm sure you were just blown away. I mean, the part that always strikes me is hearing his voice messages or converse, actually his conversation with Tanya and yeah. just how devious he was and how threatening he was. I mean, was that, it might be a dumb question, but I mean, was that the John that you knew at any point? I mean, did that surprise you to hear how he was speaking to Tanya? Um, yes and no. I knew that after he got out that he had a, a vendetta against her, yeah. but I didn't, uh, I'd never heard that tone of voice before or the th- anything like threatening like that. I mean, he never used that with me. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that conversation definitely made the hair on my arms stand up. I, I I'll, that part sticks out of the dirty John podcast for me. Yeah. She handled it very well. She I, I would have been, I would have just fallen apart. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't, I just, when we talked, I told her, I said, I just don't know how you held it together. She was so incredibly strong. So, mm-hmm. So after you'd heard about, you know, his death, you listened to the Dirty John podcast. Does your husband now, does he know about this whole Dirty John saga? And what does he think about it? Yeah, he knows. He says, unfortunately, there's a lot of guys out there like that. Right. You know, yeah. He just is like, well, yeah, you know, it, it, they're, they're out there. Just yeah. Like yeah, I know. And it's, I'm sure that um, listening to the Dirty John podcast, the one good thing that may have come out of it is I hope it's a teaching tool for many women, you know, mm-hmm. um, who just, just a signs to look for and that there are men out there like that. I mean, he just yeah. caused such havoc on so many people's lives. And to this day, I mean, the things that he did will last forever, you know, the emotional scars. Well, then there's still things that are coming out, you know, that I'm learning by just listening to interviews that you're doing and I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Um, before I get into that, I know that you, because I talked to Tanya and you you also told me as well, you got a chance to talk to Tanya, uh, John's yes. first wife recently. And how did that go? It went fine. I mean, I was, of course, very nervous because I didn't know how she would, you know, feel knowing that I was with her husband the same time she was married. Sure. And she understood that, you know, he was good and he tricked me and that I didn't know and um, she was very kind and very, very nice. She very is. Very strong. She is such a, that's, that's probably the number one word I would use to describe Tanya is strong. Just, you know, not only um, the way that she, you know, dealt with, with John, everything he put her through, and then also just, you know, raising those girls and that her girls have gone on, you know, to, to college. One just graduated, Emily just graduated. Um, so she's got to be so proud. She's obviously done a very good job. And I'm sure a lot of that is also attributed to her, her husband who uh, really has acted, you know, like a father, has been a father to those girls. So right. yeah, I'm just in awe of Tanya. It's definitely the way that she handled John, the way she's raised her girls and just very, very strong woman that I look up to. She did a great job with those girls. They're really, they're really doing well. 
Yeah, she sure did. Yeah, and she's just, she's really done. I, I worried about her for so many years. I really did, yeah. but I, I couldn't do anything because then that would put a target on my head. Yeah, and that's the thing. And actually, Tanya says the same exact thing that you did is that she, once she knew, you know, that John was not a, not, not a good person and really dangerous she was afraid for herself and for her daughters. And so she, you know, obviously her instincts was to go kind of tell the, you know, other women, hey, this is what he's capable of, you know, probably wanted to protect them. But in the same regard, she's opening herself up to his wrath and he was very dangerous. So I think she found herself in that same position you found yourself in is sort of self-preservation and you have to save yourselves and you mostly have to, you know, protect your children. And uh, you don't want to be on John's bad side, that's for sure. Right. And I, I knew she had Augie and I knew that she had uh, an, the investigator. I'd seen that in one of the, the newspaper articles that this investigator was keeping tabs on him. And right. I think he had mentioned one time, John had mentioned to me one time that there was some investigator that was up his rear end his, in so many words. Yep. So I thought, okay, good, good. <laughs> right. That's good. And so I felt that made me feel a little bit better. But hearing, I think it was Abigail, I think maybe it was Dateline where she said that she would get in her car and worry that just broke my heart. That's terrible. Just Nobody should ever have to feel that way. Like yeah, yeah, I just, I, I, I can't even imagine. And um, yeah, such strong women to, to be able to get through all of that. And, you know, the end result obviously was shocking. And I know that it's probably hard for, you know, John's sisters, even though they know what kind of person he was, it's probably hard for them to deal with his death. But overall, I mean, you got to believe that if John was still here today, I mean, he would not have stopped behaving the way he was. He was a very dangerous Mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Tara being as brave as she was and and things, you know, ending up the way that they did, I got to believe that lives were saved. And, um, Oh, absolutely. You know, they had to be because he was really just spiraling downward fast at that point. And we still don't know if he took any that we don't know about. This is true. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder about that. I wonder, you know, how many are there out there that we don't even know about? Yeah, you're right. We may never know. That's an interesting thought. And actually in that vein, have you uh, spoken with any other women besides Deborah and Tanya who John was involved with? No. Okay. Because I know, so, you know, going back to, obviously, you know, they're making a TV production. And I did see uh, recently that one of the women he was involved with indicated in a Facebook group that she had been contacted by the production company and they're going to want to interview her for the the series. Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. So I wondered, um, has anybody contacted you um, to speak with you at all for the movie? Or I'm sorry, for the TV series? No. um, Tanya thinks maybe somebody is going to but that nobody has yet. And would you have an interest in, you know, telling your story or just providing insight for, for the TV series? Sure. Yeah. 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 I think a lot can be learned. I really do just with women speaking out about what they've been through. I think that's the one good thing that can come out of this is like I said earlier, it's just, it can be a very big teaching tool um, for women out there to stay, you know, keep them safer. Mm -hmm. I agree. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to um, the TV series. I, gosh, I've just been so fascinated with the story. I, my fascination has just been with, you know, when people, you know, when people commit crimes, like John did, I just want to get inside their brain and understand what makes his brain so different from the average human being that he could go and do these things and really just have no empathy and just continue to hurt and continue to hurt. I don't know, but that's what fascinates me. But as you know, the podcast is completely blown up. I think to this day, it's still, you know, at the very top of the charts, it's had millions of downloads. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've passed the word along to people that I knew that, that also knew him. And yeah, a lot of people are learning about it. They are. Um, Actually, I forgot to ask you earlier. um, Did John, what did John say about his family? What was his story about his family? Was he in contact with them or did he have a story as to why he was not in contact with them? Well, over the years, it seemed like there were times when he he got along great with his mom. I mean, when he gave me her phone number, Mm -hmm. certainly he might've been, you know, getting along with her then or else he wouldn't have done that. Um, it seemed like his, I think his, it was his sister older, uh, he had two sisters. Yes. One of them, it seemed like they were really close over the years, you know, thick as thieves. And then they had a falling out. And when he told me about the falling out, I was, I was in shock because, and he did tell me that she was the one that took care of his house and his dogs, not this anonymous girl that had written me, uh-huh. that, that his sister took care of all that. 
And I think at one point I thought he was either working with her at her, her business or something or living with, with her. But they all seemed, they seemed very close until they weren't, yeah. until, he turned, until he turned on her. Yeah, because I think this is the same sister that, um, you know, was interviewed on the podcast. And she was, from what it sounds like, she was helping him a great deal. But he was just kind of back to his old ways, you know, taking advantage and really just not, you know, at all appreciative of, you know, what she was doing. And then I don't know if that's what caused their falling out. But um, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh. He had also had, I think, I remember him telling me he had a half brother, another half brother. Oh, okay. Somewhere. But um, he's, I think he's up in the Bay Area, so he really didn't have much contact with him. He visited him once in Southern California when um, John was still working at the firm that I was working at. Okay. A half-brother who was younger, older? Younger. Okay. Younger than John and both of his sisters? Yeah. That you knew yeah. of? Okay. That I knew of, yeah. Okay. He, I think. I think that maybe it was his mom's child after she remarried. But I can't be. I can't be positive. I don't really know that for sure. But that's the impression that I got. Right. Oh my gosh, the story never ceases to amaze me. And I again, I just I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about it. I was really looking forward to speaking with you because I'm just so interested in getting all perspectives. And you've definitely shed some light on John Meehan and you know the person that he was. And uh, I really, really appreciate you talking to me. You know, I'm just so happy that you weren't hurt and. Gosh, I'm just glad that his reign of terror is over. I am too. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just look forward to watching the TV series. And I think they're also going to make a documentary as well. Right. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Hopefully they'll contact me and I can give them my story. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine they would. It sounds like they're kind of slowly making their way through everybody. I, I had heard that at least one of John's sisters will be participating in it. Um, and then also you and I saw there was another woman who had a relationship with John who in the Facebook group announced that she would be participating. I know that Tanya, you know, obviously is participating. I, I think Tanya's participating. Yeah, I think Tanya said she was. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they reach out to you and I'll look forward, you know, if they do, I will, I'll look forward to seeing you featured on the TV series. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kathy. And, and I hope you have a wonderful Mother's Day again. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for calling. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. This helps the podcast in more ways than you know. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Murderish Pod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And remember, listeners of this podcast aren't murderers. You're just murder-ish. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Murder, the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. A short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that, a word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal because they've lost a loved one to murder. And I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford, and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one -on -one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. Hello all, I'm Paul, creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I've been a crime buff for many years now, and my enthusiasm has led its way here. If you fancy each week delving into some obscure 
for in-depth and often disturbing true crime tales from the shores of the UK, plus you don't mind the northern accents and the down-to-earth manner, then why not come have a nosy? The show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So it'd be great if you guys could come and have a look-see and I hope you can subscribe today. I'd love you to join me and I look forward to seeing you there too. See if you can become enthusiastic about the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.